Dave Fanning on 2FM. Now, in recent weeks, we've spoken to the likes of singer-songwriter Kinsey and musician David Kitt about the albums that have influenced them or the ones that they have particularly enjoyed. Well, this week, we haven't had a novelist on for at least five, six weeks. Yeah, Colin Tobin. Okay, well, this time it's Irish novelist Joseph O'Connor. So what album has Joseph chosen? Well, I'll tell you what album Joseph has chosen. Joseph has chosen Horses by Patti Smith. From that, Free Money. Song. That's from Patty Smith, of course, from her album Horses from the mid 70s. Joseph, you're very welcome to the programme. It's lovely to be with you, Dave. Thanks very much for having me in. Great. Now, let me see. Let's take a look at this. You know what? I thought you were going to pick a Boomtown Rats album. Yeah, I could have. <laughs> uh, and on another day, I would have. I mean, they were a great, great band. And if you grew up in Dunleary in the late 70s, as I did, yeah. um, there, there was no band that I ever felt closer to and more rooting for uh, than the Boomtown Rats. Yeah. Um, little touch of Patti Smith to the vocal um, technique and to the writing here Well, here, let's, let, let's take a look at that because what is this album? I mean, like, it, like I mean, for instance, if it's 75, um, New York Dolls had happened in America, but didn't really affect us over here too much. Feel Goods were happening in London. But, like, you know, there, was, there wasn't really Sex Pistols. Even Ramones are The Clash just yet. It's just before all that. And yet it is the punk aesthetic through and through, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's <clears throat> very basic approach to the musical part of the songwriting. A lot of the songs have two or three chords. And I now know from having read about horses over the years, that's very much how they worked in the recording studio. They'd go in with a couple of very basic chord sequences and build from there. And the lyrics would be quite rich. But they hung on to that ethic that I think they must have got from the Velvets and Lou Reed, who famously said, you know, a song should have one chord or two, any any more than two chords, and it's jazz, you know? So <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think they, li- they like that kind of um, gutsy directness, but Patti Smith's music had a richer uh, element to the lyrics, I think because, as you say, it's 1975, it's, it's kind of pre-punk, and yeah. she came out of a hinterland of the kind of Lower East Side bohemian performance poetry, Thing. She'd been a performance poet for some years before she was a musician. Uh, so she was interested in William Blake and Allen Ginsberg yeah. and Verlaine and Rambo and all of that, as well as the New York Dolls. And, you know, she was a big presence in CBGB's, the, the downtown punk uh, club on the Bowery in New York. So she brought together a lot of those influences. I mean, I suppose all that was present in how I came across the album, which was about a year after it came out and an aunt who lived in London had sent me a tenner, ten pounds sterling <sighs> as a birthday present. How a much prince, was that? A was princely that about, was that sum. In those days. Probably, probably was, yeah. 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 It, was, it was a lot of money anyway. Yeah. And um, So I went into town as I used to like doing, hanging around the Dandelion Market and the bookshops. But there was a little record shop, which I know you will remember, Dave, which was then on, I think, Bachelor's Walk, certainly was the North Keys of the Liffey, called Freebird Records. Ah, yeah. It was on Grafton you, Street first, you know. Oh, was it? Yeah, right, yeah. 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 Well, it was It was, It was. was. Uh, was on the Liffey Keys by the time oh, I yeah. got there. Yeah. So you went down 
the steps through the kind of strip curtains and into this dingy little basement that smelt of patchouli oil and other things. And you wouldn't know what you would hear in there because there, there might be blue mink and, and there might be Led Zeppelin and there might be Captain Beefheart and all of that. It's a wonderful kind of um, oasis. So I was in there, I had my tenor, I was looking through the punk records, which by 1977, the early great ones had all right, come yeah, out. There exactly, was the Pistols yeah. the and the Clash. The first, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and a lot of the covers were very, very colourful, very lurid. I mean, it was a great thing about yeah. the early punk graphics, day glow and luminous and cut out strips of blackmail lettering and all of that. So I was leafing through the records and in the middle of them, there's this very unusual cover. as uh, a black and white photograph taken by Robert Maplethorpe, as it turned out, of this woman who you weren't quite sure if it was a woman or a man. There's an androgynous kind of thing to it, um, kind of raffish yeah. image with the jacket slung over the shoulders and she looked like Keith Richards about to head out to Studio 54 for the night. <laughs> and, and and it was like a, a still from a very cool French movie yeah. rather than a punk record. And I still think, Dave, uh, 40 years of buying records, it may be the only one that I ever bought for its cover. And I remember getting the 7A bus home to Dunleary through the snow. Uh, it was November or December of that year and putting on horses by Patti Smith and the world just burst into colour because uh, there was nothing monochrome about the music. No, indeed. Wow, there's a description. I just as a matter of interest, like I mean, I, I, I hate using the word iconic, but here it goes. Why is the cover, or have you just described it, why is it so talked about and iconic? I mean, with I, all I, due respect, regardless of the stance, regardless of the androgyny and everything else, mm. she's just standing against a white wall. Yeah, I th I, well, it's very beautiful. It's, it's, yeah. it's very striking. And I think it was because it was so strange and unusual. I mean, I'm from an era, I don't know if you remember, I remember with affection. Um, there used to be the top of the pops album anthologies that would come out every month oh, yeah. with, with, with kind of cover versions of, of songs that were yeah. um, that were hits at the time yeah. by, by studio Usually musicians. a dolly bird in, Usually a, a, dolly in a bikini. Bird. Yeah, bikini or hot pants and all of yeah. that and that was how like women were supposed to present themselves at mm. the time and this was so different yeah. uh, from that and even like male pop musicians didn't present themselves like that either so it just kind of spoke to there's going to be something strange and something unusual okay, look, about this record. We better talk about the record. Let's let's talk about the music. I mean, it is challenging. It is exciting. It's very different. And did that jump out at you as well? Yes, it did because I had never heard anything like um, the writing on horses. I mean, the track "Birdland," for example, yeah, it's like it's more like a short story really than. Denison. I didn't know it at the time, but you know, it has echoes of what critics call gothic or southern gothic or noir writers like William Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor. And just a, a story song. And then um, Free Money. I, I had never heard a love song like Free Money before. I mean, it's a great song about being young and in love and not exactly flush with the cash and, and having dreams and all of that. And then Gloria, this um, fantastic album opener, which kind of leans very heavily. It's a deconstruction and a putting back together of Van Morrison's uh, Them, great, yeah, great yeah, song, Gloria, yeah. uh, married to a poem that Patti Smith had already written. And it's just the character 
in that song. The, the narrator of the song oh, yeah. is kind of so um, strange and powerful. It's a great kind of classic of garage music, Gloria. It's got three chords and she, she brought all of that and a kind of bluesy sensibility to it and the band are just on fire and I love how the song starts very gently and it yeah. just builds up. Yeah, which we'll play in a minute or two and we played Free Money already so... Um, We'll play Birdland as well. So just very briefly then, like the music itself. Um, do you think that there's music on this album almost only in a technical sense? I mean, every single song seems to have a different, like there's a jazz one as Birdland really in some ways. Um, there's kind of, there's a reggae one, my favourite track on the album, Red 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 Redondo Beach, Beach yeah. and all of that kind of thing. But I mean, it's like she sings, she has a band, a recognisable style maybe, but actually it's only a dramatic backdrop for the lyrics. Uh, no, I think th- she does kind of incorporate um, references to Hendrix and references to the Velvets, yeah. Jim Morrison. It's kind of tripped through the musical and poetic counterculture, I, I yeah. suppose, yeah. of American history, which is to make it sound a lot more kind of uh, dull and academic th- than it is. I think she was doing something really original, really new, and it's certainly it sent me back as a young fan of the record, yeah. to, to records that my dad had in the house, for example, of Irish traditional music, people like Liam Weldon and Frank Hart, because they also did story songs. And from there back to Woody Guthrie, who did the, the talking blues. Yeah. I, I love music that has speaking in it. And from there, like forward, when I hear great music now, like the Fontaines DC or Idols yeah. or Denise Chyla, who, artists who speak as well as sing, you know, it, it brings me back to that. And there was a kind of sneering, snarling quality to the voice that reminded me of the early Dylan, but also of John Lydon. So she co- connected all of these yeah. wonderful things and then brought something new as well. Right, indeed. OK, well, just one last thing I want to mention before I play the second song, which is... Uh, Possibly, would you discuss this, the most compelling element of the whole thing, obviously the music, the poetry, etc. No, the performance. Well, the performance is really outstanding. And, you know, 20 years after Horses was made, I went to see Patti Smith performing the entire of Horses Mm. uh, at a show in New York. And I mean, the energy that she brought to it, like I remember thinking three or four songs in, there is no way that somebody of this age can keep this energy going for the whole show. It was like looking at a teenager. So it was high intensity, you know, a a, a touch of um, Van Morrison's shows from the late 60s and early 70s that were full on soul reviews um, and just wanting to win over the audience and wanting to convince all of the time. You know, she she gives it 110% in every... Yeah. Uh, track on Indeed horses. she does Yeah, Very okay. very committed singer Very much so Yeah that's what I mean The performance really is out there It's it's unique as well I'll tell you what We played one track Free Money I'm going to play this one now A little bit of it anyway Birdland This is Horses From 75, 76 Direction from Paddy Smith Joseph O'Connor is here just talking about it as probably his favourite. Certainly, you've got great memories of it, that's no doubt about it. Now, Patty Smith, um, tell me, you met Patty Smith, did you? Don't yes. tell me you went to her and said, Oh, Patty, I think you're fabulous. <laughs> no, I didn't. So, um, I'll tell you the quickest version that I can. So, 14 years ago, myself and Anne Marie, uh, my wife, and our kids were living in New York, and we went along one night to the Metropolitan Museum of Art where there was a Patty Smith gig 
to accompany an exhibition of her photographs, which was on at the time. Right. But it's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so it's not a big rock and roll venue. It was a gentler show than usual. Parts of it were acoustic. Uh, I have a lovely memory of Lenny Kay uh, on acoustic guitar singing the Paul Simon song America and Patti Smith's daughter accompanied her on keyboards and all of that was lovely. So I was writing a newspaper column at the time for the Sunday Indo here in Dublin and my column that week was a review of the show and I said how lovely it was. So on the Monday morning I get an email from the late Angus Fanning saying I don't know if this is actually real. But overnight, we've got an email from someone who says that she is Patty Smith and she saw your review online and she wanted to thank you and drop her a line. So I drop a line, absolutely convinced that this is one of my mates from Dublin, um, yeah. practical joke stuff. And I say, thanks very much. It was a lovely show and it's a pleasure to hear from you. She writes back and says, next time I'm in Dublin, we must have a cup of tea. And I write back and say, well, actually, I'm in New York at the moment and I'm 10 blocks from your house. Not that I'm a stalker. Uh, so so maybe we'll meet here. And she wrote back and said, OK, come around tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock and here's the address. Wow. <laughs> and as I went up the steps of the house and rang the doorbell, I was still not entirely convinced. You thought you were going to see your old next door yeah, neighbour from South Dublin. It's kind of, but the door, the door opened and Patty Smith stepped into the porch and she didn't say anything. She put her arms around me and we stood there for a couple of seconds and I thought, God, you can kill me now. Uh, that that would be fine. So we went into the house. Uh, we had a lovely chat. She asked me to bring her a copy of a book of mine. The book I had out at the time is called Redemption Falls. Yeah. She asked me to read to her a bit from that. We had a very small glass of port um, together and a nice chat. And then she sent me home uh, through the streets of New York. But while I was there, as I mentioned her phot photography, she was showing me some of the photographs uh, that she had taken just on the living room wall. And there was a beautiful photograph that I just was drawn to of a typewriter, of an, a 1910s or 20s typewriter. And I said, that's that's a really lovely photograph. And she took it off the wall and gave it to me. So in my work room at home, Dave, on the wall, I have the framed signed photograph by Patti Smith of Herman Hesse's typewriter. And if the house were to burn down, that would be the only inanimate thing that I would save. It's just a lovely little thing to have. A lovely little thing to have. A what a story. Yeah. Fantastic, it was great, great, Brilliant. A great New York story. And you kind of thought on the way home, like, did that actually just happen? It could probably only happen here. I remember walking past CBGB's as it happened on the way back to the apartment we were staying in and just thinking, people say that you should never meet your musical heroes you've met many of yours I've met few of mine uh, but but to meet Patti Smith was just a great honour and a pleasure The track I want to play next um, I think it's meant to be kind of coming from a woman narrating as a man preying on a woman but I don't know if that's necessarily what you get out of Gloria tell me just a bit more about that I mean what does it mean to you? Uh, well, it's the first track on the album, yeah. and it, when 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 you were uh, fourteen uh, and you took that song home on the bus, things changed. I read recently that um, there's been research into this that to some extent the music that you listen to from the age of fourteen to twenty two or twenty three really is the music oh, that yeah. that shapes your yeah. life. And it's not to say that it doesn't develop, but it kind of develops within the codes of what you listen to when you were young. You exactly. like music that has those themes and music that has that approach, um, and. Uh, I, I just hadn't ever heard 
a character sing with such kind of confidence and strangeness and menace. Um, the band Lenny Kay, um, is just magnificent playing on it. Uh, Richard Cole, keyboards player. And it, it all just comes together in this amazing track that starts so gently and just builds up and up and up and goes mad. Yeah, and you could take this one or you could take Land Horses, the one later on as well. They're like, you know, th- there's a tempo. There's a kind of, if you like, there's an accent going on. There's an instrumentation going on. And nothing lasts too long. Yeah. It, it all changes all the time. Well, she, 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 she's part of the great legacy is that the you know you know the register never lasts too long she's already playing for an audience that she's afraid is going to get bored and you just don't get bored <laughs> listening to Patti Smith because as soon as you're into what you think is the groove of the song like you think in the opening oh, bars yeah. of Gloria oh, yeah. this is a John Lee Hooker kind of predatory blues thing it's very blues chords yeah. and then it starts to change the tempo changes yeah. the intensity changes so she's always race. kind of surprising you even within the same song That's or sometimes it, yeah. within the same musical phrase no exactly that's it exactly well anyway let's try it this is Gloria um, and thanks a million for talking to us about the album because it, it is great there's no doubt about it I'm very different and still stands out Gloria uh, from the album and uh, Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine mm-hmm. Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine Milton hot thieves there you go, Gloria is the track, of course. That is Paddy Smith. So tell me about you, sir. Joseph, my father's house. Um, yeah. you, you're having a pint somewhere and you hear, the, is that how you write it? You hear a story and you say, well, I could write a story about that. Yeah, well, Knowing the way I write, I could. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I, I saved them up. But I have a kind of a air traffic control tower relationship permanently going on with stories circling around me saying well I might write this one I might write that one and it's just because you know I don't want to get writer's block I always want to have things that I could turn to so a good few years ago somebody told me the story of this um, great man fascinating man Hugh O'Flaherty who was from Kerry and born in 1898 he grew up in the 1920s the black and tans is going on all of that so he grows up around people's feelings towards England and English occupation and English soldiers. Anyway, in his early 20s, becomes a school teacher. Late 20s, uh, becomes a Catholic priest and he goes off to work in the Vatican. A, a scholarly man, two PhDs. He spoke five or six languages and he worked in the Vatican Curia, which is the civil service. Yeah. So he's in the Vatican, late 1930s. The war breaks out. The Nazis invade many places in Europe, including Italy, and they get closer and closer to Rome. And in September 1943, they overrun Rome and the Gestapo take over control of Rome. But But as people who have been to Rome will know, in the middle of Rome, there is the Vatican, uh, a sixth of a square mile, and it is technically an independent country that has police force and a post office and the things that countries should have and it was neutral in the Second World War so Hugh uh, decides his historical feelings about English soldiers notwithstanding that he's going to save as many allied prisoners as he can men who have escaped from the fascist prisoner of war camps up and down the length of Italy and it goes around the prisoner of war camps if you can get yourself to Rome and get yourself into the Vatican this big tall man from County Kerry who's very recognisable will hide you and save you and get you back out to safety. So he put himself at enormous risk uh, doing that. He put together a really interesting 
group of six or seven people from very different faith perspectives and nationalities and politics. You know, some of them were practicing Catholics, some were communists um, and, and worked together to, to save all of these people. And what might interest music fans is that uh, they are convinced, this escape line, that every room in the Vatican has been bugged by the Gestapo. So, so their their disguise for their meetings is they form themselves into a choir and they meet two or three times a week for choir rehearsal. But as they're singing, notes and plans and documents are being passed around between them for how they're going to make this week's escape plan work. So there's a lot of music in the book. And it's about this wonderful man from Kerry. OK, that's the true story. The choir. Then, then there's the Joseph O'Connor story. Yeah, well, the choir is mine, uh, you know, the, right. like the, because I just I wanted to import. But all the rest of it is true. I mean, like in the Schindler kind of way, we're talking six and a half thousand people that he can say he saved. Yes, we can. It may have, everything it, from Allied forces to Jews. Yeah, everything. It, yeah. it may have been more. We, we'll never know. He he was um, very modest man. He wasn't in this for for self acclaim at all. As far as I've been able to ascertain, Dave, having researched him. I think he only ever gave one interview about this subject in his mm. whole life. And my sense is that he did it to get rid of this subject. Um, I've read all of his surviving correspondence, which is given to me by his family, and he never really mentioned it. So like a lot of men involved in the Second World War, he, he was silent about well, it. Well, uh, but also the Nazis wouldn't have liked him doing what he was doing. But the Irish government, neutral again, actually reprimanded him and in a very kind of yucky way. Yeah, there's a chilling uh, bit of correspondence that's, it's online, it's in the Department yeah. of Foreign Affairs archive, uh, saying to him, this will have to stop, Ireland is neutral, Ireland is a young country, we don't want to provide a pretext for the Luftwaffe to, to yeah. attack uh, Galway or, or Dublin. And if you don't stop this, you will probably end up in a concentration camp yeah. and it might do you some good if you did. You might right. learn a thing or two. Okay. So it's an amazing way for the Irish government to have talked to an Irish citizen. So you have the Nazis trying to stop him, the Irish government trying to stop him, the papal authorities trying to stop him because there's a concern for the physical and cultural and artistic um, inheritance of the Vatican and they don't want the Nazi tanks rolling into St. Peter's Square. And he must have argued with himself about it, Dave, because this man wasn't a saint, you know, he was he was a flawed human being uh, but, but like he wanted well you know <laughs> you read the book and you can yeah, decide yeah that's what I mean, I mean like, but you, you like I, I, th I think he was one of those amazing people who who are not able uh, to do what they're told you know I think to me like the really fascinating yeah, thing about that. him is yeah. that he, he wasn't able to follow orders from friends or enemy or anybody else like he genuinely had this moral compass that yeah. meant I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I hope it works out but if it doesn't I'm going to do it anyway Right exactly well by the way it's called My Father's House as in in My Father's House there are many rooms um, Joseph O'Connor it is Occupied Rome One Man Takes a Stand now let me take a look at this bit here because there was a movie made out of this before with Gregory Peck I mean his story I mean but not the Joseph O'Connor movie so would you see this as being I mean has anybody been on to you already in the last week? <laughs> um, well a couple of people have yeah. actually yeah and um, I, I don't know if that will happen but certainly one of the things that influenced me writing it was I was thinking about those classic kind of 1940s black and white thriller movies George Raft and all of yeah. that because aspects of the story just lend themselves to that of course. a lot of it is taking place at night it's very shadowy yeah. it's the rich background of Rome yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, uh, well there are you know refugees and double agents and spies I mean. yeah, and right. beautiful people yeah. and all of that yeah. so so particularly in the second kind of third of the book it's it's divided into three parts 
and the, 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 the central bit of the book was very influenced by 1940s movies. Divided into three parts. Is this any... Uh, is there a follow-up book to this? There's nothing like that. Yeah, is it, yeah. Is this so number one of a trilogy? It is, ask? yes, right. yeah. Halfway through writing this one. Um, I just had the notion that there might be further possibilities of the story. So My Father's House takes place... <clears throat> right, hold on a second. So in other words, uh, 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 parts two and three is the same thing, is it? No. So My Father's House takes place at Christmas 1943. Yeah. The second one is going to take place in the spring of 1944. And the third one, uh, the final part of the trilogy, which is, is going to be called Legal Tender, takes place in June of 1944 as the Allies are closing in on Rome. Uh, so it's a different atmosphere. And so have you ever looked at the at the fact that like your your books have been translated into 40 different languages? Mm. <laughs> Do you ever look at them and say, wait a minute, somebody, oh, yeah. somebody got that bit wrong? <laughs> oh yeah, well, um, I mean, that, 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 that does happen. And yeah. um, there's a great story that my editor, Jeff Mulligan, used to tell about a man who had dedicated his book to his wife um, to sue with love and the Japanese translation was um, to institute legal proceedings <laughs> with great tenderness. <laughs> so. yeah, I saw um, Ina Flog Uber das Cuckoo's Nest in, in Germany once and like, you know, like Jack Nicholson was going the foulest language about five minutes and on the screen it just said Scheiße. <laughs> so yeah. It gained in translation. <laughs> it then. did, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, well listen, congratulations and we might see it on the big screen too and we'll certainly have part two and three within the next few years. Yeah, yeah no, next, right, the next yeah. two or three years. I shouldn't call them part two and three. Just, just well, there's, there's two and three they're standalone books, yeah. but but yeah. uh, well, listen. Congratulations. Occupied Rome. One man takes a stand. My father's house is what it's called. Joseph O'Connor. Joseph, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, and good luck. Thanks very much, Dave. Dave Fanning on Two FM.